This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Hello and welcome to the August 9th edition of the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy podcast. In this episode, we talk about soybean diseases, including soybean sudden death syndrome, red crown rot. We get an update on southern rust and we talk a little bit about fungicide applications. Good morning and welcome to the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy podcast. I'm Brian Schrader, agronomist on the eastern side of the state, joined as always by my co-host Ben Jacob from southern Indiana and Carl Jorn from western Indiana. Good morning, guys. Morning, Brian, Carl. Howdy, fellas. Well, guys, I know that uh, both of you have been on vacation for the last couple weeks, or I guess last week, two weeks, the same week, I guess maybe. Uh, I'm not going to let you get away with vacation, Brian. I was doing the Lord's work in Johnston, Iowa, so I was back, okay. at the, uh, back at the mothership, but may have felt like a vacation in terms of how a lot of growers would characterize me not being around to walk their feet. All right, fair enough, but we do know Ben was, and so Ben, how was that? Um, it's always enjoyable. Um, I mean, I know that I know that the folks, at least in southern Indiana, Indiana, tend to not have a proclivity to have a beach vacation in, in northern Michigan. But if you can tolerate some brisk water, it's it's quite enjoyable. And you know, I've I've sweat enough this summer. It's nice to be able to sit on the beach and be comfortable. So yeah, very enjoyable. All right, good deal. Well. Uh, been kind of an interesting few weeks here as corn and soybeans have continued to develop and we're starting to see maybe uh, some of the issues from earlier in the season creep back in, uh, namely uh, soybean sudden death syndrome. I think that's probably one of the best places to start. Certainly that we know, and we've talked about this on the podcast many times before, that uh, that infection actually probably occurs earlier in the plant's life cycle. Uh, early after emergence and early in development. And so I know, Ben, you had mentioned you're starting to see some sudden death syndrome creep up. Uh, I have not yet seen any SDS on the east side of the state in my geography, but I'm certainly expecting to. So I guess give us a little bit of an update on what you're seeing in southern Indiana on SDS so far. Yeah, so it's it's been a little bit of an interesting development. As mentioned, I was I was out of the state last week, so not walking soybean fields in southern Indiana. I was able to pop into a few this morning, but I always find it interesting as I'm gone during the growing season um, for an extended period of time like that to note the change um, when I come, you know, I travel I-70 almost every day throughout the growing season. So to see the difference in that over a week and say, and there are there are a lot of these yellow patches or some yellow plants that you can see from the highway starting to show up that weren't there a week ago. Um, and was able to get out and check out some of them, confirm that for the most part that that is that is sudden death that we're dealing with. And and you know, you're you're absolutely right. That infection happens early season. Um, you know, this is maybe showing up a little bit earlier than what I, I would typically see it in this area, maybe about two weeks quick, I think. But when when you get these rains and you know so it's a root and stem rot initially and we get these rains and it flushes the toxin out to the leaves so when we start seeing the foliar symptomology um, and when we really know that we have it i, I know we're going to touch on it later but there are some mimics um, of sudden death but if you if you understand the genetics and, and what seed treatment you use you know if you have a good good genetic tolerance with alevo and 
um, and think you're seeing something abnormal with that, it, it may be one of the mimics, but but this is a situation in my area where, you know, if you hear if you hear hoof beats, let's go ahead and thank horses, not zebras, because um, most of the time that's what we're going to be dealing with. Right. But yeah, be curious to see, Carl, if you've got any manifest up in north northwestern Indiana. Yeah, good good question, Ben. You're correct. I think we uh, came across some sudden death syndrome starting up end of last week. Uh, memory serves Nick Hedden has come across a little bit. So um, I've had some reports, if we want to talk to the lookalikes, um, up in uh, northern Jasper County of sudden death syndrome setting in. Now, this would have been three weeks ago, uh, which felt awfully early to me. Um, and so in that instance, uh, I, I think it was one of those mimics. Uh, as we're talking through how one would diagnose sudden death syndrome versus uh, some of the other diseases out there, first thing I always advocate for is let's go ahead and split the base of the stem. And when we do that, then we can kind of see the the pith versus the cortex of the stem. So the inner stem versus what, you know, might be the the meteor part of, of the stem, if you will, um, where, you know, there's, there's more, more uh, solid tissue there. So both uh, function in terms of the vascular system, moving water and nutrients up and down. But sudden death syndrome, uh, when you go ahead and you split that stem, you're going to notice something that's, that's it's a little different um, compared to the mimics like a brown stem rot um, or a uh, something we may talk about today, red crown rot. Um, and so so that's the important thing to, to evaluate. So brown stem rot is going to kind of have a stacked pennies appearance within the inner part of the vascular tissue um, and then sudden death syndrome that's going to be clean um, in, in terms of that that uh, that innermost part of the stem so those are two ways to kind of delineate between those two um, I'd be curious if you guys have any other ways you kind of help diagnose sudden death syndrome uh, early on later on there's another tell but but how you guys go about evaluating that that's probably the best way to do it early on. It, it can be really difficult without splitting a stem, Carl. As you well know, it'll just start in a small spot. You'll have very small spots on the leaves initially. As this toxin gets flushed that you mentioned, Ben, starting to come up, you will start to see these spots develop. But those spots, there again, can mimic some other things um, if you're really not paying attention. Uh, I think, too, your comment, Ben, about being away for a handful of days and then coming back and seeing those differences, I think that's one of the things with SDS that's difficult is because it's just incremental over a number of days. And if it's the same soybean field that you drive by every day or it's the one right outside of your back door, let's say if you're a grower, it happens so subtly over a number of days that you can almost miss it until it's all there and you're like wow what happened because it can be such a subtle disease as it develops over the course of its life cycle and so i it's i don't know how you tell a guy not to pay attention to something but that's one of the things with sds that i see is if it's in a field right there and you're looking at it every day you don't know until it's bad um that that's what it is well, and so just to re-rack the conversation too, Ben, you said you notice there's some spots in the field where you start to see some yellowing. So as folks go out 
and inquire, uh, you know, alleviate that curiosity, you're going to be looking for kind of an intervenal pattern. So between the leaf veins, um, it's going to start off as kind of yellow spots. And as that time goes on, those those yellow spots will coalesce within that inner venal tissue. And as the disease progresses, those yellow spots, the chlorotic spots within the leaf, they'll turn brown, they'll be a necrotic spot, and eventually they may tatter out. Um, you see that because it's a, like, like Ben said early on, it's, and, and Brian, you did too, it's an early infection, something that takes place within a month of that soybean plant getting its life started. So it's the reason why you see this necrotic chlorotic tissue is that it's an accumulation of a toxin that's produced by the fungus that exists within the, the soybean root system. And so it's not until the plant's using a whole boatload of water um, you know, on that quarter of an inch, three tenths of an inch of water usage a day, that's when we're getting through the latter stages of the reproductive phases. That's when you start to see that toxin accumulate. Otherwise, the plant's not moving enough water and we're not producing that toxin at a, at a great enough rate for it to accumulate and for you to notice it. But all of that in the spirit of diagnosing it, now you know what to what to look for, but ultimately we're not going to do anything about it in the year 2023. This is all for those those sequential cropping rotations, how we're going to manage for that disease moving forward. Yeah, and I think that's really the big thing. You're going to have to take a note of this. You're going to have to think about it, put it in the memory bank, and then probably the first and most uh, logical choice is to select a variety uh, that has a high tolerance to SDS, uh, and your local pioneer rep or your agronomist can help you do that. And we've got a number of varieties that do that. But the other piece to add to this also would be seed treatment and specifically a levo that you could add to those acres when you rotate back into soybeans. And I will certainly tell you guys from my geography, there's a noticeable difference when you have side-by-sides that are treated with Alevo and those that are not in those fields that have chronic SDS issues. And I know, Ben, you've experienced the same thing uh, in your geography. We've spoken about that on the podcast before. Um, I don't know, are you guys seeing those differences yet uh, in your geographies? Are you aware of those side-by-sides that exist still, or are we past that even at this point? There, there are going to be fewer out, although we're still, you know, there, there are um, geographies where Alevo is almost standard practice at this point on soybean acres, and there are other geographies where where folks have never tried it. So, you know, there's still some work there because it is it is valuable. You know, whichever rate you choose to use the, the SDS or the SCN rate, we do we do see a nice response to it. Um, you know, the you mentioned the genetic component of that, Brian, as well. I think that. You know, in my experience, we can almost get a, a score improvement. You know, if you're looking at our scorebook and, and that Alevo application, you can you can improve it by about one. So you you can't take something that is really poor and make it great, but but you do you do improve that tolerance, and sometimes that's just enough. I I, I typically, if I see in a, in a, in a average year, whatever that means, I don't know what it means anymore. Um, but an average growing season, I would say that a that a score of a five could probably use some help and anything more than that, the genetic tolerance probably, probably gets it by, except for I would just say during the past three years when we've had wet and cold planting windows and the beans have stayed in those cold saturated soils for a long time, you can start to see that 
genetic tolerance get overtaken? Um, and I know it's, I know this is making a little bit of a tangent, and we've made the plug before, but but I want to again. You know, one of the reasons that internally we were so excited to get back to A-series soybeans, to get back to our own genetics, is that that across the board is an average of a score improvement on SDS, which is essentially 10 years of, of genetic gain. Right? So to go from T-series back to A-series, we move everything forward 10 years. And, and so some of the issues that we have seen, you know, maybe we don't have to deal with quite as heavy. But that being said, there's a, as I'm getting back into the field and assessing it, there, there are there are plenty of symptoms to to hunt out across some of the varieties out there. Very much. And maybe that's the transition point. Both of you guys have talked about uh, this mimics, these other diseases that we see that have very similar symptomology. Uh, one that we should probably talk about that is, I guess, fairly new to the state of Indiana uh, is red crown rot. You know, we you talked about uh, brown stem rot, Carl, that can look a lot like uh, sudden death syndrome. Uh, there's some stem canker that can mimic that a little bit. Uh, there's just a lot of diseases, and a lot of it's because they focus on the vascular uh, component of uh, the soybean. And so when that gets clogged, we have issues and we see similar symptomology. Uh, red crown rot is, again, above ground, a very similar symptomology to this. Uh, I found some red crown rot in my geography a year ago. I have not found any yet, but I do know that uh, one of our colleagues, Kyle Quick, has found some in his geography, which would be a little bit uh, further south than I. I know the guys in Illinois have found some again this year. Uh, I, I believe there's some reports to the west side of the state as well. Carl, you can help confirm that for us as well. Uh, but this is certainly a lookalike in really symptomology above ground very similar to what we've talked about with soybean or excuse me soybean yeah sudden sds yep. thank you mm -hmm. sudden death got tongue-tied there uh probably the biggest distinguishing factor for the red crown rot are these small little red balls at the soil surface uh, that are along the stem and really that's what the biggest telltale sign for red crown rot uh, that you'll see uh, beyond that above ground it looks like many of these other diseases that we've talked about uh, conditions uh, are very similar in terms of infection temperature regime is very similar uh, typically in springs where we have wet planting conditions so a lot of similarities here but a very different disease in terms of uh, what it looks like after the infection and how to tell it apart we really don't have any other soybean disease in Indiana that mimics it at that soil level, I guess, is the way. And right now, uh, again, another fungal disease. So we're kind of at the mercy of varietal selection at this point uh, in terms of trying to improve our case uh, for red crown rot as well. And so we're, we're learning that, I think, as an organization a little bit. Uh, we're certainly learning it as, uh, you know, those that advise folks in the state of Indiana. I, I don't know anything you guys would add to red crown rot uh, in the conversation. Brian, I'll throw out and and I'm speaking um, just uh, speculating here. I wonder if red crown rot is something new 
um, or it's something that now a lot of crop advisors in the industry know to hey, take a look for those red pustules that down at the base of the stem that were more hip to it. I don't know. We we didn't have uh, Dr. Talenko comment on it, but I think her plate is pretty full with tar spot as it is. So probably welcoming a new disease isn't something her program's uh, too right. too interested in. Um, but yeah, to your point on um, you know variety selection and screening for this disease, that's probably a little bit beyond where the industry is today. Where I'm at right now in terms of the number of fields I walk that have sudden death versus red crown rot, it's beyond a 10 to 1. Um, so just in terms of blocking and tackling here and what to keep you up at night, I'm firmly in the camp of sudden death syndromes. What's what's paying the fungal bills as opposed to red crown rot. But as time goes on, this very much could be a similar conversation. What tar spot once was more of a novelty than a true management concern. But Ben, I, yeah. I know you probably had some thoughts there too. Yeah. I mean, back it up just a little bit um, as far as identification compared to sudden death syndrome. Um, you know, the foliar symptomology is is pretty similar and hard, hard to distinguish. If we get late in the year, um, red crown rot tends to hold the, the leaves and petioles to the stem, plant that's died from that, whereas SDS will, will cast those off as we get late. Um, but it, that's fairly late in the year. If you're identifying it right now, you know, you're going to you're going to be looking for those differences in the stem. Um, and, and to your point, point, Carl, it, it's certainly not a new disease. Um, even to soybeans in the in the southern U.S., it's been it's been known down there because it because it also infects peanuts. Um, so where you have the peanut soybean rotation, obviously it's more common when you have when you have two hosts. So certainly not new, just maybe new to us to deal with in the in the Midwest um, with you know where I'm at a pretty standard 50-50 corn soy rotation. Um, not a lot of alternative hosts around. Um, I did find. I did find some information at one point digging through that this this has been identified in soybeans in Japan, actually, going back mm-hmm. to the, the 1960s. So, yep. you know, again, not not brand new by any means, but just a just another challenge to deal with. And I would I would again, you know, go back, go back to the hoof beats. I agree with you 100 percent that if it's if it looks like SDS in the field, I, I fairly confident that that's what we're dealing with, but I do want growers to know um, that this exists and to be aware of it and to think that, you know, if we have, if we have a system where we feel like we should be controlling SDS really well, uh, whether through genetics or we through the application of Olivo, whatever that is, or we didn't feel like we had the right environment for it to really show up, you know, we may, we may need to take a di- little bit deeper look um, because there is a potential that it could be something else. Yeah. And I will tell you guys, in my case, a year ago, when I found it, the big thing was twofold. One, it was an area of the field where you would have not expected to have seen SDS necessarily. Uh, We tend to think of the areas of fields that are a little bit wetter, Mm -hmm. uh, stay a little bit uh, soggier as being the first places you would find it. That was not the case with this one. And then when I went to cut stems, Carl, it was obvious that there was something about this stem that was not like the other. And yeah. when I cut that open, you could find that those red, those small little red balls right there at the bottom at the soil surface. And that for me was, but I went into it expecting to find sudden death syndrome and ended up coming away realizing that I had found a small little pocket of red crown rot. So uh, I your analogy with the hoof beats, Ben, I think is very appropriate. If you see these spots in your field, assume 
going into it that you're probably going to be looking at uh, sudden death syndrome. But once you get there, make sure you're looking at all of the clues to ensure that you are making a correct diagnosis uh, because we don't want, you know, don't want to make a corrective action in 25, let's say, when it goes back to soybeans, that's incorrect. And then you end up with the exact same situation that you had before. So, And if you don't feel like an armchair agronomist or pathologist in this regard, that's what the state resources are there for. Send it into a lab, send it in the Purdue Diagnostic Lab, call up your pioneer sales representative, call up one of us, you know, let's let's go ahead and get that confirmed that way. To your point, Brian, we're making the proper management uh, changes if they are required um you know ben made the comment about um you know red crown rot and one of the one of the tells i'd say sudden death syndrome oftentimes you'll see petioles retained maybe not the trifoliates but oftentimes you'll see the petioles hanging on so if you're wondering as you're going through a a, a low pocket in the field brian to your point uh, maybe a headland where it's a little more compacted and you see them kind of hanging on like christmas trees um and you see the yield monitor dip maybe now we're coming across what what could be sudden death um, but that aside, one thing that I, I'd hate for us to neglect um, is is the idea of the soybean seed treatment side of things and managing for sudden death syndrome, only because I do get the question fairly frequently about Saltro and Ilevo and where we see, you know, I, I guess benefits or, or parity. And one of the places, talking in a heavier sudden death syndrome year because we got planting earlier, um, is is heavier sudden death syndrome um, fields is where we've seen ILEVO have a little bit stronger of an advantage comparing ILEVO versus the Saltro package. You're looking at, uh, I think that, oh, ILEVO is maybe bringing around four bushels better than the untreated where Saltro was bringing, um, you know, seven tenths of a bushel better. And um, so this is against the standard check, if you will. Um, so head to head, you're, you're seeing, you know, nearly a three bushel spread at $14 beans that starts to add up in a hurry. Now, to Ben's point, we can't uh, forecast out what what's going to be an average year, a heavy sudden death year. But as folks are making some management decisions, be cognizant of there is a difference, even though uh, products might be labeled for the same disease, doesn't mean they have the same level of efficacy. Yeah, nope. Very good. Well, maybe a change then still a little bit uh on the disease front, but maybe let's switch our attention briefly to corn. Uh, ben, I know southern rust is always a concern, and we're getting to that point in the season where uh, if it's going to show up, there's a good chance we'll start to see it. I know you keep an eye on many of the monitoring opportunities that we have for southern rust. Can you give us a quick update on where you feel like southern rust is at and what we should be looking for for those guys that it's a chronic issue? Yeah, I, so so overall, I mean, the southern rust pressure down through the delta has been has been relatively light this year. We'd expect to see it moving north, um, heavier than it has. There there were some fields lit up um, late last week in Kansas and a couple in northern Arkansas, and that that kind of changes my risk assessment of it coming into Indiana because we'll get more. You're more in line with the primary weather patterns. It's a lot more likely for it to come, make its way from west to east um, than it is to come up, especially in a year where we haven't had any, you know, significant tropical storms here late in the season to kind of bring that up. Usually, usually we can count on a, you know, a late July hurricane or, or even a tropical storm to bring it up 
um, earlier in the year for us. So most of our earliest planted corn is far enough along. It's no concern. I, I might reword that. Almost all of our corn is far enough along. It's not a concern. Um, everything is flowered down here. So, you know, we're really, by the time it moves in here and gets, gets um, built up, now there is always the off chance that it has, it has made its way here and we haven't found it yet. Um, but looking at the forecast, we wouldn't really necessarily expect it to be our, our ideal for a real heavy, real heavy disease buildup. Um, but just because it has been a light year so far doesn't mean that it's something that we can just quit monitoring for, especially in those fields that have just recently flowered and they still have you know, the grain fill window for that d disease to potentially impact them. Ben, for those of us that don't deal with southern rust typically, and it's got to be, I guess, a word here for those north of, let's call it I-70, we've got to have a really bad southern rust year for folks in the northern tier of Indiana to experience a southern rust issue that requires treatment. But And so for those of us that maybe are not uh, used to dealing with this, remind us again of what the environmental conditions for southern would be. Yeah, so it's it's very similar to um, to gray leaf spot. It likes warm, it likes wet. Um, the difference would be that so the hotter it is, the, the the better southern likes it. So you can okay. get you can get on a high end of a temperature temperature range, and gray will actually slow down. Uh, but southern, when we have these, when we get usually when we see it heavy is when we get into August, and we've got these nights where it stays in the 80s, and we have a hanging fog or a dew that lasts until noon. And, you know, we're 100% humidity down here every day, it seems like. When you have, when you have those hot nights, a couple of days that we're pushing, pushing 100 degrees and somehow still manage to have, have leaf moisture within that, that's when we can really see it blow up quick. Okay, great. Well, I guess you guys both being out of the territory, maybe that's the most appropriate way to put it for you, Carl, out of the local <laughs> territory. I will tell you guys that at least on the eastern side of the state, we had airplanes, uh, helicopters, even some drones flying last week to get those fungicide applications done. As we've talked about on the podcast, a lot of our corn over here was planted maybe a little bit later than what you guys experienced. So the timing appears to have been about right. I think we're probably on the downhill slide in fungicide applications on the eastern part of the state uh, with the conclusion of this week and maybe the first part of next week finishing things up. Uh, but Carl, I know that you've had some conversations with some folks about fungicide applications and things. And so I guess give us kind of an update on your thought process uh, as you're evaluating the need for fungicide or what we should do as we kind of wind down the typical prime application timing for corn fungicide applications yeah we're, we're all over the board this year brian um and so uh sitting here on august the 7th in terms of making fungicide decisions 90 percent of those have been made at this point you know either we we had it in the budget we we're planning on putting it on we put it on when we wanted to or we were waiting and waiting and so for those that have been waiting keeping the powder dry you have two options if it's in the budget this year and you need to go ahead and make that application, once we reach that milk stage, you know, uh, as Dr. Nielsen would have called it once, Bob would have said roasting ear stage. Um, that's kind of the what I would call the last agronomically optimum time to apply. And Dr. Talenko's work with Tarspot would show that they still see great returns when applied in that R3 growth stage. 
Uh, ben, if I remember right, I think it's maybe the Arkansas pathologist has done some work on Southern that would show once you get past R4, you're not going to see a, a, a return uh, in terms of being warranted for fungicide app. So the longer and longer the grain fill period goes on, the less and less return one's going to have on the fungicide investment. So you get three weeks, two weeks of good activity. If it hasn't gone on yet, I'd go ahead and get it on again if that's part of the budget. Uh, been part of a lot of conversations here lately, even over the weekend, about you know this field feels like a coin toss. What should I do? Um, and that's a that's a tough one to answer without if you don't know. Um, we, we can't say it in broad strokes, but you got to think of what was last year's crop. Are we in a continuous corn system? You know, what do we do for tillage? What's that hybrid's tolerance? What's the upcoming forecast? The upcoming forecast, golly, you couldn't order up a better one. We got a slug of rain over the weekend. Uh, as long as that didn't come with a bunch of wind damage, you got 80s and 60s to get us through this week as we're kind of getting into what I call the mid-stage of grain fill here at R3, R4. Um, plant's going to be really happy. And the the I guess the long-term outlook for August is looking kind of in that average or cooler wetter so we're not going to slam the door shut on grain fill like we do from time to time that's going to be really good for us to to really pack those kernels deep so anything we can do from a plant health standpoint is going to give us the ability to take advantage of that forecast not going out and advocating for a second application of fungicide only reason why one should ever do that is based on scouting um, so if you if you went early and um, and you haven't been in your fields in a while it's probably wise to go back out there. But uh, in terms of getting that return back on your investment from a yield standpoint for corn, we're kind of getting up against it right here. You can still get a big boost out of standability with a fungicide application even later than this uh, when you're talking about a rapid declination due to tar spot. But um, that, that doesn't that's not the norm, if you will. So talking broad strokes here, um, it looks like we're going to have a nice window for grain fill. So let's make sure we have healthy plants out there. Uh, didn't touch on soybeans, but that's something where I can leave the meat on the bone for you guys to pick at that conversation. Well, I think there's two things that come to mind for me. One, uh, as I have looked at and I have discussed corn yield with several growers in my geography, it looks to me like at least in the eastern half of the state of Indiana, we have the opportunity for a very good corn crop. Um, to your point, we also have uh, what appears to have been pretty good conditions for disease development, mm -hmm. uh, especially gray, Ben, from, to your comment about southern. And so you've got 21 days of protection uh, on your corn when you spray your fungicide applications. And as a grower, in terms of timing, you have to decide what the most important 21 days of development are. As an agronomist, I can make a pretty good argument for an early application, but I can make a pretty decent argument for a later application as well. But again, that's a lot to do with that environment that you've spoken about already, Carl. So the last thing I'll add to that is when I talk to and I canvas growers who are viewed as exceptional corn growers, almost without exception, they are spraying a fungicide on their corn crop. If you wanna be an elite corn grower, it probably has to be something that as we move into the future, you have to consider as part of your plan if you are not now. It just it has become 
Uh, probably an overused term, but it is table stakes at this point for elite corn growers in the state of Indiana to need to apply a fungicide. Yeah, I I don't have really much to add. I think that there's still, you know, we're we're solid R4 of most of our beans down here. There's probably still a window to make a soybean application. Um, if you haven't yet and you've looked at you know, we've accumulated a lot of moisture and you feel like there's a benefit to it. Or if you're, you know, you're going to make an insecticide pass to kind of help beat back some of the Japanese beetle populations that we've seen in the spike up over the past couple of weeks. Um, you know, there's logic there. But like Carl said, if you've got it in your budget, and you're, you're still you still have yet to spend it. I think there's still there's still time to see that benefit from it. And we have had the conditions to to have disease progress. And and, you know, after. You can have infection without visual symptomology. It takes time after that mm-hmm. initial initial infection for us to be able to see it in the field. So there's there's still there's still an opportunity to stop that completely and have that period of um, have that period of, of protection from the fungicide and have that disease restart. Um, I agree. I, I think that I'm I'm to the point where the timing may change year to year, but I'm, I'm to the point where we fungicide every acre every year. Uh, we, we just may shift that around when that is based on the particular threats of that growing season. Yeah, uh, I guess a point of clarification, Ben, I just want to make sure our listeners understand that the diseases that we're targeting on our soybeans with a fungicide application are not any of the ones that we've spoken about earlier in the podcast. Uh, we've said a couple of times, mm-hmm. but it's worth reiterating, we're not going to correct an issue if you have red crown rot in your soybeans or if you have sudden death syndrome in your soybeans those are not going to be corrected in 2023 with a fungicide application we're talking about frog eye leaf spot and some other things that may be out there and so just want to clarify that for folks especially given the amount of time that we spent earlier uh, talking about uh, sds and crown rot so in the uh, spirit of making sure we're, we're uh, articulating our points clearly, Brian, when I was speaking to Saltro and Ilevo, uh, I think that I, I stated that those yields were compared to the untreated check, and those those are compared to our lumogen-based treatment, so our standard okay. yep. fungicide insecticide. So if anybody's doing the back-of-the-envelope math, as I did after I said it, somewhere around 50 Sixty dollars of of profit um, with that with that fourteen dollar bean. If you get three four bushels on it, um, just know that that's compared to your standard treatment. So if you're trying to parse back what's the value of seed treatment in general, know that that's on top of what comes as a standard part of your treatment with Pioneer yeah. beans. So uh, that aside, could be overkill, but wanted to make sure I uh, I was saying exactly what the data would suggest. Okay. So guys, we've talked about a lot of things today as we kind of bring the podcast to a close. want to do something we've not done in the past, but I'm curious if you have a grower that calls you today, what are the things that that grower needs to do over the next seven days? What would be your advice to a grower over the next seven days? Uh, Carl, let's maybe start with you. What would your advice to a grower be about how to do things, evaluate things, manage his acres over the next seven days? Yeah, great, great question, Brian. Um, and uh, I think a lot about soybean management right now, uh, given that we're probably making the last passes already on corn, but beans in the northern latitudes, we're still working through it. So a good number of acres yet to be sprayed with respect to fungicide. Um, we're in that later R3 growth stage for the most part. 
Um, and so depending on who, who you listen to, that later R3 or R4 stage is a sweet spot for when to apply fungicides. Ben spoke to it just briefly um, when it comes to managing for Japanese beetles. Uh, also include bean leaf beetles in there, any of our later season defoliators. So if you're making the pass, consider throwing a, a generic insecticide in the tank. Um, when I was on my way out to Iowa last week, we were getting pretty dry and I could see a fair amount of uh, two-spotted spider mite damage there on the end rows. We've talked about that in the podcast, but keep scouting that. I wouldn't think anybody's going to see that now, given all the rain we got over the weekend. Um, so cast that one back out. But as you're making those fungicide and insecticide passes, this is an opportunity to take advantage of um, of uh, that pass. And so if you haven't evaluated later season uh, foliar nutrition, that's a place to look. Um, I'd, I'd encourage you to reference the Pioneer Yield Pyramid. Uh, we've published some sufficiency ranges on soybeans and corn. Um, and so uh, visit with your Pioneer sales representative about what those uh, R3, R5 sufficiency ranges are in soybeans. Because I can tell you a lot of samples that I've looked at here as of late, um, still were in the tank on manganese. And you're not going to get a better read on your uh, nutrition samples until you get a rain because then the plant's eating and drinking again. So if you took them while it was dry, not going to see a whole lot that's of value because the plant's just not getting in what's available to it. So uh, long way of answering a short question, what to do over the next seven days. But I would, if you haven't made your fungicide insecticide pass yet, scout to see if it's warranted, growth stage those beans to know that you're hitting the sweet spot on timing and see if there's an opportunity to throw something else in the tank, like a manganese, perhaps a zinc um, based on your tissue sampling results. Okay. Ben, how about you over the next seven days? What's your advice to a grower? Yeah, I agree. I agree with Carl. I'm at, um, you know, any, any fungicide applications that we've not made, let's, let's sort out if and where we're going to see the the greatest benefit to those. Um, if you have made your fungicide application already in beans, I, I think we're going to, I think we have some areas where we're starting to see some insect pressure a little bit heavier. I mean, it'll be, it'll be interesting to kind of assess that this week um and it's probably too early really to do it um but it never is because that's where the excitement's at i am going to be spending as much time as i can in cornfields looking through looking through um how how successful pollination was how well grain fills going on you know we have we have should have some of our earliest fields that are you know already dented um, if not, they will, they will hear this week, um, with some of the heat we had early on. So we can start to get a really good idea of, you know, what, what yield may look like. And we can also check out, um, you know, the, the structural integrity, I'll call it of those plants and start to start to get an idea if there are things that we need to prioritize for harvest, um, you know, and how, how good of a workout our grain dryer might need to get this year, given how well things are standing. So, you know, it, it it feels a little early to be saying that on August 7th, but we do have some stuff that's far enough along that can get out there and do it. And man, man, it's exciting to see what the what the last year, you know, get our first true glimpse of what we might have accomplished in the past year. So. All right. Well, I won't repeat those things because you guys took everything on my list that I would have recommended as well. I'll just add this, that there is no better time, I feel like, during the year than right now to scout 
scout, and scout. Your two best tools right now, in my opinion, is your eyes and your feet and being able to scout these fields. And so uh, I'm hoping that folks will take advantage of the cooler mornings that we're expecting and uh, not be so uncomfortable. Pair of cheap rain pants to keep your uh, jeans or legs maybe dry as you go through those things. But uh, I would just encourage everybody. And if you're not somebody that has a history of scouting and you're not sure what to look at, that's a great opportunity to call some of these folks that we've had on the podcast, uh, whether it's your local pioneer agronomist, your local sales rep. Those guys love to do that. Those those folks love to go out and do that, and they would love to help you understand what to look at and uh, what to look for. And so I'll I'll leave it at that for this one. So, guys, I think we can call this an episode. Uh, Carl, if somebody heard something today and they'd like to dig in a little bit deeper with you uh, to understand your thoughts on fungicide or soybean disease or whatever, uh, how can they either follow along or get in contact with you? Yeah, I'd be happy to uh, go ahead and reach out on Twitter at Cjorn, that's C-J-O-E-R-N, or on Facebook at Cjorn Agronomy. Mr. Jacob, how about yourself? Yep, you can find me at the same locations on Twitter at the Ben Jacob or on Facebook at Ben Jacob Agronomy. Mr. Schrader. Yes, you can find me on Instagram at B underscore K underscore Schrader. And Schrader is S-H-R-A-D-E-R, no C. So with that, we'll call it an episode. We thank you for joining us for the August 9th edition of the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.